and welcome back to the Angel Investors Access Show. On this series, we talk to startups, angel investors, VC firms, mentors, coaches, and stakeholders that play a part in the Australian entrepreneurial ecosystem. Proudly brought to you by C2 Angels, helping build a community of like-minded, aspiring angel investors right across Australia and beyond. Have you booked your angel opportunity investment discovery session yet? If not, what are you waiting for? Become an angel investor today and visit c2angels.com. And now let's head to the next episode and join me with our special guest. Good to go, mate. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Angel Investors Access with your host, Brandon Burns from C2 Angels. I'm excited for today's guest because he's a founder, an investor, and a mentor. And if you go to his LinkedIn, you can see that he's actually been interviewed at the New York Stock Exchange. It's the founder of Thrive, Michael Nusiforo. How are you? Awesome, Brandon. Thanks for, uh, thanks for catching up today. Mate, my pleasure. And it's a thrill of ours to have you on the show. Tell the story of you know, an active founder, investor, and mentor in this space and someone who's really had a roller coaster journey right around the world, all, all the way from Melbourne, I believe. Yeah, correct. I grew up in uh, Mooney Ponds, <laughs> of all places. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd always, uh, you know, always had a desire to go and travel and, and go overseas. So yeah, I can talk, talk you through that. But, you know, I think it's, um, you know, Australia is a great place for, for starting a business, but obviously there's a lot of opportunities overseas as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing we love to do on our show at the very beginning is paint a picture visually for our listener who's driving or on the treadmill and really dive deep into getting an understanding of what a typical day in the life of Michael Nusiforo looks like. Oh, wow. All right, not many people know this. I actually normally get up at 4.30. Wow. <laughs> uh, and that's funny for me because growing up, I used to sleep into probably 4.30 p.m. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think part of that is because I, I had a son last year and, uh, you, know, you know, trying to help out my wife, who's also due with our second, uh, you know, getting up earlier gives me some time in the morning to just get on top of work and totally. I just feel less stressed, basically, you know, throughout the rest of the day, I just have less things on my plate. And you know what it's like, you know, when you, during the day, new things come up. So I, I just love getting sort of that early start and, and getting on top of things. Um, normally, after doing some work, um, I'll head out for a run at sort of 9am. Um, and, and have some breakfast uh, and then it's just more more work you know just calls and and obviously uh, being at home at the moment with the restrictions it's, it's just a lot of zoom and, and doing it that way um, usually five to seven is is family time yep. um, spend some time with my son help my wife you know do the cleaning do the dishes um, and then I'll usually log back in at night a little bit and, and uh, finish off any emails and things like that so pretty boring right now uh, but yeah, that's a typical day. I love it, mate. It sounds awesome. I thought you were going to mention a bit of yoga for a minute there. Oh, yoga I've never done yoga. No, <laughs> I'd love to. I, I'm jealous of people that do that stuff, but I've never done it actually. Now I want to give everyone listening an opportunity to Google you and your latest endeavor at the top of the show before we get chatting so they can check you out as they listen. Hit me up with the latest venture, what it is and how people can check it out online. Yeah, awesome. So the new one's called Thrive. Uh, Thrive is a digital bank for SMEs and small to medium businesses. So basically the problem we're solving is a lot of business owners just don't have the time or the expertise to manage their finances effectively. And we're creating a platform that allows 
them to do their banking payments, accounting and tax in one place. Wow. Uh, and, and in doing so, save them a lot of time. As a byproduct of that, having all those great insights, the banking, the payments, the accounting and tax in one place allows us to also uh, lend to them more efficiently because we understand their business end to end. So, you know, that's the vision behind Thrive. Um, it's early stages. We're looking to launch next year, uh, but people can check it out at www.plusthrive.com. So that's P-L-U-S-T-H-R-I-V-E.com. <laughs> well done, mate. You got it out. Now you mentioned that business. <laughs> you mentioned that business in itself is early. How early is it in the scheme of innovation and competition in its space? Yes. Yeah, so I my background is in banking. So the concept of what this is, I've actually I had the idea a while ago, um, and uh, subsequently over the last couple of years in the UK and the US, there has been a couple of uh, I guess similar types of services launch. Locally, uh, there's nothing live at the moment. I'd say the closest thing for, for most of the people listening would be something like, uh, they may have heard of Judo. Yes. So Judo is an SME-focused bank, but uh, they're targeting a bigger uh, sort of 250000 revenue-plus type business. Um, and also, you, you might have heard of like UpBank, which is more a retail-focused bank, but similar in the sense that we're coming at it from a different angle um, and we're targeting uh, a particular niche that we think is underserved. Yeah, yeah, I had Dom Pim on the show um, the other day, actually, from Up, and it sounds like... Yeah, Dom's great. I, I had a chat with Dom, uh, you know, a couple of months ago to get some advice from him. So he's, he's great, and it's great that he's open to helping out, you know, other startups in the community. Yeah. Now, I want you to take me on a bit of a journey here and share with us the excitement and the thrill um, of your 10-year uh, overnight success, <laughs> as people would call it, <laughs> like yeah. Atlassian. Talk to me about um, you know, the growth of Parkham, the acquisition, the process, and the thrill involved. Yeah, so Parkham was, was an interesting endeavour. So at the time, I was really fascinated by um, the, the launch of sort of Airbnb and Uber. Yep. So this was back in sort of 2000 and early 2014 um, and 2013. And I was reading a lot of uh, blogs and, and sort of commentary on it and I just found that whole sort of sharing economy space really interesting. And at the time, I, I just started thinking about what other services could that model be applied to. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'd, had a, I'd had a really interesting career to that point. But from a career, from a corporate perspective, um, you know, straight out of uni, I got a job at ANZ and, and worked in corporate for about 10 years. I got to the point where I felt there, you know, I was sort of hitting a ceiling in terms of what I could achieve. Um, and, and how I could challenge myself in a corporate. So yeah. I, um, at that time, a mixture of, you know, seeing those models succeeding and, and wanting to take a step out of corporate, um, I conceived of the idea of Parkham. And the interesting part about it was um, I was based in London at the time. And where it really kicked off was my co-founder, uh, Robert, we, he'd actually been visiting me in London and staying at our place. Um, and uh, I just started sort of spitballing the idea with him and, it evolved from there and Robert ended up becoming my co-founder uh, in the business. So that was great. Wow. So we, um, we, we just initially took it as an after hours project. So literally work all day in my corporate job, go home at night. Um, I tried to do it in a structured way. I know some people in a, you know, the mentality with a startup is just to dive straight into it. Yes. We tried to do our research. We tried to think through a strategy you know, what the market size was, um, who our competitors were. And 
I think having that grounding actually really helped us in the end. And I'll yeah. touch on that a little bit later as to why, but, you know, putting that grounding, um, we were really able to speak to both um, potential hires to potential, you know, investors really eloquently about the business and the model because we, we learned it all inside out. And unfortunately, Rob and I didn't come from uh, a background in that particular industry, which was parking. So Parkhound was, a marketplace for people to lease parking spaces and, and lend them out. We didn't have a background in parking. So we had to learn it, you know, over those initial months. And, and, you know, as much as we spent time on it, you're still learning on the job, you know, two years later. Uh, so yeah, the, the initial phase was just about, um, you know, figuring out what we wanted to do and how we were going to attack the market. Then it was a case of going into building out our MVP. Uh, building out something that we could actually test what the response was like. Now, fortunately, my background's in product and product development, so I was able to build up something quite basic yes. that we put out there. And it was really funny because, uh, you know, our first deal that we ever did on Parkdown was on Twitter. So <laughs> we were literally sort of cold connecting and contacting people uh, by searching for people who were commenting about frustrations they had with parking. And uh, equally, we were looking for people who um, had mentioned, you know, trying to make money out of, um, you know, sharing economy services. And we managed to find someone in Queensland who had a parking space to lease yeah. on Twitter. At the same time, like the next day, we managed to find someone on Twitter that was looking for parking. And we actually did that deal manually. So that's how it started. That's how basic it was. Um, but for us, it was interesting because you know, in that process of doing everything manually and, and, you know, literally taking it step by step, we got to understand every single aspect, every single challenge that a customer might have, every single, you know, um, technology that we may need to implement in the future. So, yeah, it just sort of grew from there. We, we invested a lot of time. Eventually, Rob and I got to the point where we realised, you know, the business had legs and, you know, we left our corporate roles I moved back at that point um, and this was about six months into it. So, you know, high level first three months was a lot of research. The next three months was, you know, getting the product out there. And um, yeah, that's, that's sort of when we ended up back here and, and we sort of transitioned into a, a more proper business. Yeah. I love that, mate. What a great story to hear. So um, I'm keen to understand now what's been maybe one of the biggest challenges or mistakes you've had to face that's actually been a real blessing and lesson as a result. Yeah, well, I think um, one of the things that we had with Parkhound is we had a lot of existing competitors that, um, you know, they, they had bigger resources, they, they had a brand, all of those different things. And I think initially we were looking at um, taking them head on. You know, it was a case of trying to, you know, acquire parking spaces within properties that they may have had spaces in. It was about trying to market in, in places that they were marketing. And we soon realised that, um, you know, we needed to be different. Now, we can't attack the, you know, the, the behemoth in the same way that, you know, they're operating today because we just don't have the resources or capability to do so. So, and, you know, give them all due respect. They've been running those businesses for many years. And, you know, there's household names there like your Wilson Parking and Secure Parking. You know, they run multi-billion dollar parking enterprises across, you know, Australia and other regions. So... I think the biggest lesson for us is um, take advantage of uh, being a small startup 
and think differently and, and look at angles and, and opportunities that, you know, your competitors might not be looking at. Because if you try to compete in the same spaces as them, you're going to struggle. So we ended up then going down a path of actually being more a community-focused uh, platform and also working really closely, you know, creating a strong word of mouth in our product and referral. Um, and eventually we were spending hardly anything on marketing, which has actually become one of our biggest advantages because um, we were known in the market as the place where you could lease parking um, and we weren't paying a lot for that traffic. A lot of it was coming just through word of mouth, referral, awareness, PR that we received. And, uh, you know, that became ultimately a strength of ours. Yeah, I love that. Um, so what then gave you the impetus and the, uh, the will to really take that plunge and get back in the game and become an angel and an investor, you know, put that other hat on and really get back into things? Yeah, I sort of initially it was organic. So when I started at Parkham, when I came back to Melbourne, Rob and I applied for an accelerator program uh, that Melbourne University runs called MAP. And that was a great program, first of all. So I'd encourage anyone who's thinking about starting a business to, you know, the first time to do something like that because, A, you're around a whole cohort of like-minded people, you know, who are running their own business. So your, your learning uh, is just exponentially higher than working on your own, right? Because you're seeing how other businesses operate and what they're learning as well. And also a lot of them have different experiences and backgrounds, which can be really advantageous to your business. Um, but during that process of being on the MAP program, we started to get exposure to um, VCs, angel investors, and also working with other startups. And, and by virtue of that, uh, from time to time, you might hear that another startup is doing a fundraise. So my very first investment was actually, I would say, me you know, taking an opportunity that, that came about. It wasn't something I was um, you know, really looking for, but one of the startups that I knew well um, was doing a round and I really believed in their product yeah. and uh, you know when they were doing their raise I offered to put money in now for me it was a big step right because I've never done that before and you know I think some people um, you know they're quite risk averse but I think sometimes you just have to back your judgment and if you know a business and you've seen them and, and you believe you, you know you have an unfair advantage in the sense that you've seen or you know something that probably the rest of the market doesn't um, so that's the perspective I, I sort of take with my investments. Um, and, uh, yeah, I ended up investing that, uh, in that round. And this was, this was when I was running park out. Yeah. So it wasn't as if I, you know, I was, I was in startup mode myself scrapping around, but I still wanted to take advantage of that opportunity. And that sort of piqued my interest. And then from there, I started being more active and going out there looking for opportunities. And then obviously it's a bit of a virtuous cycle when people hear that you're an investor, then they start coming yeah. to you as well. Yeah, totally. So from that experience, um, no doubt there's um, certain rules and uh, processes you like to follow. What I'm keen to hear from you for our aspiring angel listener is how have you gotten better at handling those overtures and dealing with them efficiently so you can get to your yes-no decision quicker? Yeah, really good question. I think the best thing that I've learned is to have a set of principles about what are the, the things you want to see from that business to make an investment decision. I think investors who just look at every single startup or every single thing they're investing in, uh, you know, from a clean slate, um, I think that's the wrong approach. And the reason for that is, um, 
you start, you open yourself to the risk of being not not con, but sort of hoodwinked, right? Because if you if you've got a really compelling uh, CEO who's a great pitcher and can get you really excited, then you can start to sort of get lose focus on actually what's important. So for me, irrespective of that relationship or you know how how well the CEO is is good at pitching their business, it to me comes down to those fundamentals. So I like to see that first one for me is that the business um, has a mentality of continuous improvement and learning because no matter what business you are, you're always going to have to deal, you're always going to have to just keep learning and getting better. You're going to have to keep learning about your business. You might have to keep learning about which suppliers are better. You might need to keep learning about which technology better. So I think it's having, seeing that hunger and, and the way you do that is asking questions, you know, and sending them things, sending them things to read, um, new things and seeing how they respond to those suggestions, you know, yeah. su- suggesting a book even, right? Mm-hmm. All of those things, you can see that you can see the thirst that that person has if they, if the book you suggest, the next time you speak to them, they've devoured it and, you know, thank you for suggesting it to them. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, I like, yeah, I like to see structure, like a lot of startups um, and, and, you know, good luck to them, but they can get away with raising without actually having a proper business plan or a proper marketing plan or a proper budget just because their idea is hot or exciting. I, I avoid those personally. Even if I think the idea is great or I think the founder is great, I actually want to see that structure because to me, um, it's a sign that, uh, you know, when things go wrong or, you know, in the future, that business will struggle to adapt because they haven't actually gone to the effort of thinking through you know, what their plan will be long-term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's only so many corners you can cut before you get found out. So that's really important to me. There's a whole range of sort of those principles. So I think the first thing is, you know, understanding you, what you're comfortable with, and then sticking to that as a, as a guide for those investments that you're considering. Love it. Excellent. So um, for our listeners, we love to talk about, um, you know, the, the unicorns and, the Canvas and Atlassians of the world, especially because they're Australian. But is there maybe one particular business that you've watched closely and you really either think it's on the path for a huge trajectory or one that we know that you think was an excellent business and would have been great to have gotten in early on, just to give some inspiration and, and reference to our listener? Yeah, um, definitely. I think one of the... One of the businesses that I am involved in, and I still think, even though I invested in them, they have a lot of potential, is a business called Neura. So mm. Neura is a headphone business that essentially tailors the sound to your unique hearing profile. Um, and they've got a proprietary technology that enables them to detect your, you know, your specific hearing and, and adjust the sound quality, basically, to make that, that experience really premium. The thing I love about that team and why I think it's interesting and, and is the fact that the team understand hearing and sound um, you know, better than anyone. Mm-hmm. And they have a bigger vision beyond just providing something for people to listen to music to. And I, they're looking at you know, other elements of their business and how they can support a lot of different things that help people um, with hearing. And I think that's really interesting. So I think it's... <clears throat> Often without knowing the business, it's hard to gauge. So I think as an investor, sometimes you also need to ask those questions and say, you know, can your technology be applied to other things, other verticals, other industries? What's your vision for the long term? I know today you might be offering X, but do you have a vision to do Y? And 
and that's always an interesting discussion for me as well because you can really get a sense of the ambition of that business. You know, their initial product is often, um, you know, for the bigger businesses, a small subset of what they plan to do in the future. You know, if you spoke to Atlassian in the first few years of their business compared to what it is today, um, it's, it's completely different. But I guarantee you the Atlassian founders in the first few years would have been thinking about that type of scale, even if they weren't, you know, ready to launch it yet. So I think, um, you know, there's definitely Neuro, which is a local business based in Melbourne, which is doing really well. Um, I came across um, a, a business in the US, um, which is on another scale, but it's called Oscar, which is an insurance business. And they've completely disrupted uh, the American medical insurance business. And obviously most Australians know that, wow, that's a really expensive, uh, you know, you hear all the horror stories about, you know, having to go to hospital in the US and they've completely disrupted that model and, and had a lot of success. And I, I find what they've done really inspirational because they've come after a massive industry that obviously has a lot of issues that is equally very, very complicated, mm. but they've had the guts to go and, you know, go after it. And, and they've actually, you know, you know, starting to get really significant market share over there. So, I, you know, I look at different businesses from different perspectives, but I'm always fascinated by businesses that, you know, go after, you know, these big behemoth uh, verticals or industries and, and take them on because I know how hard it is and you need a lot of persistence and a lot of uh, self-confidence to do that. Great. Excellent. Yeah, this, this is a personal question because some angels um, prefer to do it different ways and at different times, but do you prefer to be inactive and on the sidelines or quite an active investor when you take on an investment? And do you like to sit on the board or do you like to advise and mentor? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, personally, I'm not a big fan of boards and I think some startups go too early to a board um, and I think it can be quite stifling you know one of the things with a startup is you want to move fast and, and make decisions and I think sometimes that can be diluted if you have a board too early um, I understand the benefits of it as well but that's just a per personal preference I, I tend not to get too involved beyond uh, mentoring which I enjoy and it's it's actually as much for me <laughs> as it is for the people I'm mentoring because I'm also equally learning a lot about the businesses so what i find in those conversations when i'm mentoring a startup is that i'm learning perhaps about a particular technology or a particular approach that they're taking which is a learning for me and on the other hand i'm teaching them about you know principles about how you would operate or, or handle a particular situation just given the experiences that i've had yep um so I, I enjoy I enjoy mentoring, but I think yeah I, I try to keep hands off, and that's purely because I've run my own businesses and I, I sort of understand it. You know, at the end of the day, even if I'm even if I'm a, a business owner that's hiring a team member, I'm all for trusting that person and saying, well, I've hired you because you're the expert and you're the closest to the decision, right? You're the one working on everything. You have all the information sources coming to you. Now you know, inserting yourself as a board member and getting too involved, again, I think it becomes something that distracts from the business owner. If you're investing in that founder, you know, have trust in them, be there for them if they need help. But I, I, I don't think getting too involved is the right outcome. Yeah, love it. Excellent. It's refreshing to hear because we have quite a few people who say the opposite, but um, yeah. I like how you trust the founder. That's key. And part, maybe part of that comes from being it yourself. So it's a real authentic experience you're communicating on. So 
Um, next question we have is a two-part, and our audience loves the second part of this question. So the first part is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And the second part is, what's the worst, the most horrible piece of advice you've ever received? <laughs> There's a couple of good ones. My dad used to always tell me, don't feel sorry for yourself, which I find I didn't really acknowledge or think about at the time, but I do have a mentality now, if something goes wrong, I just move on and figure out, you know, how to solve it or get past it. Um, but I'm also a big fan of the matrix and there's a quote in the matrix, which is there's a difference between knowing the path and following the path. Mm -hmm. And I love that quote because in my lifetime, I've met a lot of very talented people and they know what they should do or they have the right idea of what to do, but they don't actually go and do it. Um, and that to me is the difference with, um, you know, in this cases with successful businesses or, you know, anyone who's successful in any endeavor that they undertake, it's actually going and doing it. Um, so that, that's something I'm passionate about. On the scale of sort of someone who thinks a lot about things or goes and does it, I tend to skew towards like just trying to get stuff done. Um, bad advice. Wow. Um, Could even be I advice think, that was not great timing, you know? Could... Yeah, I think, I you know, I've, I've had advice in the past around uh, hiring, right? And hiring super critical when, when you're a startup because often those early hires make the, make the difference. And I think often um, when people are hiring for early stage business, they look more at, and, and I've had this advice, which is, you know, get someone who's experienced who has that track record. And uh, I find it's the opposite. In, in my learning, often those people that join who on, on, on the face of it have the, the experience, they've been a CFO before or they've been a CMO before, um, when they actually join a startup, um, they're, they're culturally completely misaligned and there's a huge learning curve for them to get used to a startup and what's successful in a corporate is, is not necessarily what's going to be successful in how you run a startup. So I think over time I've actually tended to avoid those, what I would say, um, on paper great profiles or great people and actually just look at the person and say, does that yep. person have the hunger to learn? Do they, do they really want to be part of this business? You know, they're the two things I really focus on now. So it's more, it's, it's less about experience and it's just more about the personality traits of that individual that I look for. Yeah. I love it, mate. Excellent. What are you reading and listening to right now? Yeah, I, um, well, uh, I'm a big sports fan. So I, I, I like to listen to a lot of the US shows that talk about, I'm a big fan of the NBA and other sports. So there's yeah. a lot of these really interesting commentary shows that I love um, over there. And then um, in terms of, in regards to sort of business and entrepreneurship, I have been reading um, a book by Ray Dalio that a, a mentor of mine suggested I read, which is, is a book called Principles. And it's all around principles that Ray Dalio has learned over his career. And it's really interesting that, that the way he puts it and uh, he just talks about things that he's learnt and, and when you read it, you're like, oh, yeah, I've had the same experience, you know. I, I can apply yeah. the same thing. Uh, so that, that was good. And uh, I read a book recently, another one, which is a bit different, which was called Sapien. Uh, a friend um, gave that to me. It's really about civilization and, you know, all the way from Neanderthals to now and how we evolved. And it just asked some really poignant questions around have we actually um have we actually improved things are we actually happier 
you know, all these innovations and modern conveniences that we've created, what, what's it actually resulted in? So it's, it's an interesting take on uh, sort of human evolution. Yeah, that's a, that's a great share. I appreciate it, man. Well, we're running out of time rapidly, but we're going to have to hold you to do a part two because we've just scratched the surface and I'd love to dive a bit deeper with you. Um, maybe if there was one key thing that's happening right now in your world that we as a community audience and, and network could shine a light on, what would that be? Oh, wow. I think um, just because of my sort of involvement in fintech, I think there's going to be huge uh, change, fundamental change over the next few years in fintech. And a lot of it's being driven by uh, technology advancements, government deregulation, um, and, and what I'd say sort of the major platforms, uh, you know, your Googles, et cetera, Apple, um, it's it's going to be that fintech uh, and finance is integrated into everything we do. Um, and you can already see that happening now. You know, Shopify is building out their sort of banking and payment services. So it's going to be really interesting. So I think in the future, um, everything that you use or do, you will have access to a range of financial services, you know. Um, and I think these players locally like Afterpay and Zip a part of that change and they're looking to also diversify beyond just offering in you know installment based payments into other services so it's going to be an interesting time in australia because mm -hmm. interestingly we've always been at the forefront of, of fintech development um, even though we're a small country um here and in the uk uh, so yeah i think um this this sort of integrated finance is something to look out for and i think in the future everybody will just do and pay for everything on the platform or device that they're using at that time love it well you've been a pleasure to have on the show founder investor and mentor michael nusaforo thank you for your time thanks brian it was great having a chat with you today and that's all we have time for today on the Angel Investors Access Show, your series with Brandon Burns from C2 Angels. If you're thinking about becoming an angel investor and you don't know where to start, then you know exactly where to head, c2angels.com, and book your angel investment opportunity discovery session now. Until next time, I'm Brandon Burns, and I'll catch you later.